0: Hey everyone, it's Lori Forner and this is the Pelvic Health Podcast. Wow, it is April 2020 and we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Oh my goodness, um, I'm sure there are quite a few of you like myself who have been very up and down emotionally, financially, wow, this is just a crazy time in the world, but um, But I have an episode today that has absolutely nothing to do with the global pandemic. I will have some episodes coming up um, fairly soon on that topic, but I thought I would um, put up an episode that just allows everybody not to think about it. Uh, If you have been listening to the podcast for a little while I love speaking to academics especially academics that people may not have heard of yet who are relatively new PhD candidates because if you are into research which a lot of people who are listening are into research There are so many people doing research that we sometimes don't realize some of the names that we really should be paying attention to. And Taylor Lamerton, who is on the podcast today, is one of those names that I really think people need to be putting into their little search files or into their mind to remember to follow what this woman is doing because she is pretty amazing. So, Taylor Lamerton is a 26 year old student. She's in her last year as a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. Prior to commencing her PhD, she graduated with a master's in psychology from the University of Otago, New Zealand in 2017. She has also trained as a group fitness instructor in 2013 and we did our level one CrossFit trainer course together relatively recently. with her research. Her research interests focus on understanding female pelvic floor health in young women, specifically how weight and physical activity are related to urinary incontinence in this demographic and exploring methods to improve management and return or adhere to regular physical activity. So today's episode is really all about some of the research that she is working on and um, specifically one of the um, recent systematic review and meta-analysis papers that she had done in, I talk about it in the paper, uh, it was published I think in 2018 actually, called Overweight and Obesity as Major Modifiable Risk Factors for Urinary Incontinence in Young to Mid-Aged Women, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Now, um, I... We recorded this just before Christmas, but a lot has come up, so the episode isn't coming out until now, and as I was putting in a little search to make sure that I was saying the journal article correctly, this other very cool, very recent article popped up from the International Urogynecology Journal with Taylor's name on it my goodness. So this just came out in March 2020. It's called urinary incontinence in a fitness club setting. Is it a workout problem? And it has two other authors that I'm not going to be very good at saying their names. Um, Lean Hackstad, Christina Justbang. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I've that name, but it's beautiful, Taylor Lammerton and Kari Bo. Okay, well I had no idea that she was doing this, Anyway, this is just another example of why you need to keep her name in your mind. So we're not going through this um, journal article in this session, but she's talking about some of the research that she um, was completing where she was looking at specific um, programs to run for people who are having incontinence in gym settings. Anyway, I will stop talking and let you listen to her um, and she will be back on in the future uh, to talk about uh, the rest of the research that she has been doing so I hope everybody stays safe and enjoys this episode. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health as well as a new student researcher on the fun long road to a PhD where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. I would love if you could Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into doing this work, and why your focus is on this. Because absolutely, I love working out why people ended up, especially for a PhD, because you kind of get to choose your topic, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm hoping everyone else did. Yeah, I know that it does depend sometimes on your supervisor's projects, but I was lucky enough to have the freedom to basically do what i wanted which was amazing
0: cuz you started
1: um, with so, a masters yeah so my background is actually my undergraduate is in psychology yeah so i my undergraduate and my masters degree are both in psychology yeah. and then concurrently while i was studying i also uh was training to be a fitness instructor so yeah, while I was maybe in my second or third year of university, I kind of got interested, a bit more interested in the fitness world. And um, so I decided to train and I was at a university gym. So all very young, fit, healthy um, individuals. But uh, when I was, I think in my first year of my master's, Um, I also took a staff boot camp. So the demographic was slightly different, like a university staff boot camp. So demographic was a little bit different to the students. And I, this moment like sticks out so much in my brain for kind of the first um, spark of interest in the kind of pelvic floor area. And I got the, the boot camp ladies to start warming up. And I, one of the movements was skipping <laughs> and she kind of came over to me and was like, Taylor, I've had three children. And I was like, so cool. Good. <laughs> and that thing. I'm so happy for you. And then of course she said, uh, I'm not skipping. <laughs> so that was kind of my first interaction of, uh, or I guess, recognition of, Pelvic floor as as a a consideration in physical yeah. activity, um, and I knew coming out of my masters that I loved the fitness world so much, and particularly women's health and physical activity in women. So I knew that I really wanted to do something in that area, but I also wanted to incorporate um, aspects of my psychology and behaviour change. As well and so I approached my supervisor I said here's my background Um, I probably have a little bit of catching up to do physiology wise but I'm prepared to and she was uh, I have an amazing supervisory team and they just kind of said if you're ready to do the work we'll take you on and that's that's I guess how I got here
0: (laughs) and how long has it been now has it been three years
1: Yeah. Oh, coming up to it. So I'm about, I'm just over two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe.
0: And you, you have done a lot within that time. So you started, you, so what area did you start with? Because it's funny. I mean, sometimes we follow, I follow it based on you know, you see publications, but there's so much more work that you're doing at the same time and in between.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, it's been a bit of a crazy journey because, because I didn't have any expertise in pelvic health, um, prior to this, prior to my PhD, the first um, step was just reading, for like a year straight I felt like um so yeah that was catching up on the literature catching up on physiology functional anatomy aspects um and I also which you were a part of thank you so much I I actually interviewed healthcare practitioners who were in the women's health uh domain. So I got to chat to physiotherapists. I got to chat to exercise physiologists who work with women. Um, I got to chat to um, a couple of personal trainers who are in women's only gyms just to kind of see what their experiences were and um, what barriers they find in women who experience pelvic floor issues and uh, whether they prescribe specific things and um yeah, so those kind of interviews were they, they are a part of my PhD as well, um, but yeah, just catching up on that kind of background was the first solid year, I would say. As you know, within any PhD project, there's kind of four or five aspects to it, so started out with the big systematic review um, and meta-analysis, and that was to kind of just. Bring it all together because I'm particularly interested in young women, or yeah, young to middle aged. I would say young to mid aged. Um, so just getting a good grasp on that literature. Then the second part was a secondary analysis, um, which is what I just presented on at the conference at the Sports Medicine Australia conference. Yeah. So that was really exciting. Yeah. What
0: is your thesis question, like, or what is the the main, because when we, which we'll talk about the systematic review as well, yeah, sure. you've went into um, overweight and obesity and stress incontinence. So is that where you Correct. always wanted to go?
1: So that's sort of where I started. Um, because I was looking at young women, and initially I was actually looking at young women who actually haven't had babies yet. Um, that's That was really the main risk factor that kept coming up. So that was where I started. And then, of course, I came across the issue that, okay, if we're trying to say this is a risk factor and we want to address it by losing weight, I guess, then we're going to tell women to incorporate physical activity and then some physical activity can create more symptoms yeah. of incontinence. So like I kind the moderate of...
0: moderate intensity physical activity they need.
1: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so when you're looking at weight loss, like you really, it, it is recommended that you're completing pretty high levels of physical activity. And of course that can be walking, um, but that's not everyone wants to walk and not everyone wants to swim. Or oh. <laughs> So uh, I guess the... My main interest, I don't know if it's a research question so much, is how do we address that? How do we take incontinence as a barrier
0: hmm.
1: out of the picture or, or at least mitigate it as a barrier for women wanting to participate in physical activity and whether that is to manage their weight or if it's just for enjoyment, if it's for their mental health, whatever it is, how do we, how do we deal with that as a barrier to physical activity? So,
0: so are you yeah. getting answers from the physiological study?
1: Yeah, a little bit. So still in the data collection phase, um, but what, so one aspect, and this is my psychology, I guess, coming into it, one aspect that we monitored throughout the intervention um, because I actually incorporated a progressive impact Loading throughout the intervention. So, starting out low impact and seeing where women's thresholds were um, for kind of where they experienced symptoms and that sort of thing. And what we measured was actually their confidence to progress and their confidence to manage leaking during those impact movements and progressing them over time if they're feeling confident, regressing if needed, reducing the time um, that they're completing these movements. And I think that confidence, that kind of like self-efficacy, looks like it's playing a pretty big role in in whether women will complete those higher impact or higher intensity movements. Um, And their confidence to manage leaking during those movements looks like preliminarily. Of course, we haven't done official results, but anecdotally seems to really be helping a lot. And and that's, it almost seems like it's irrespective of their total incontinence symptoms from pre to post. It's kind of like this independent thing. Um, and again, this is, this is definitely just from talking to the women and seeing how they're feeling and, and what they're adding into their daily lives as well. Um, again, just anecdotally. So from the intervention, it's almost more looking at self-efficacy and confidence uh, rather than any kind of strength improvements and yeah yeah
0: so how did you a, how did you come up with the um program
1: yeah so that was a little bit of uh, collaboration and a little bit based on um previous literature and that kind of thing isn't it always
0: though like especially if you're trying to we know that everyone needs some sort of individual approach um but yeah a lot of it is guessing really
1: i know and so what we really wanted to do was make the the program quite functional so there's there's sort of a few layers to it it's like the education is actually the first aspect. So they don't start any kind of training until we've done some education sessions and some kind of basic, I guess, just knowledge about how the pelvic floor works and how it works when you breathe and and what kind of strategies you can use. And then we said, okay, here's some functional movements that you might be doing day to day. How do we incorporate those strategies into the movements? Um, and yeah, it, like you say, it's super individual and you are somewhat restricted in research because you have to deliver the same protocol to everybody. Yeah. It's a little bit tricky to individualize, even yeah. though you can kind of see one particular thing isn't working so well for someone or, or one movement, they seem really connected to their pelvic floor, but in the other two movements, they just have no... No connection or no mind-to-muscle connection. and
0: Do you find it tricky talking about it? Because I still never know what we can talk about. Like, wh- no. how much are we allowed to share, and when can we share it? So I know, like, when we talk about the systematic review, obviously it's published. <laughs> you can talk about that. Exactly. I sent you a photo the other day of the abstract from SMA. That I was yes. like, Woo-hoo, let's talk about yeah. this, and you're like, yeah, I don't know how much we can <laughs> talk about it. I know
1: yeah it is a little bit I guess it's because I mean especially the intervention hasn't even we haven't even analyzed the data at this point so I'm definitely just speaking from the individual experience um yeah which makes it easier
0: though to talk about stuff that you may or may not or you're not sure if you can when you can generalize it it's probably yeah
1: yeah um but yes, it is a little bit, it's almost a bit unspoken, I feel like, in the in the academic world. is like, how much can you tweet or <laughs> how much can you uh, share with other collaborators who are in the same area, even though, in my mind, that's absolutely what we should be doing so that no one's wasting their time doing something that we, you know that someone's already done before or I but don't know. Half
0: the half the conclusions yeah. are this needs to be repeated to see if the results are valid. So half the times you're yeah. supposed to repeat Very studies, but true. nobody does anyway. I'm so confused sometimes. Very <laughs>
1: true. No, I know. <laughs> I know. The academic world is a is a it really is a different world, yeah. I find.
0: So with, um, so with the intervention, how long was it for? Because you were having people come in. You had women who were leaking come in.
1: Yes, yeah. So women 18 to 45 who experienced leaking, it's a 12-week program, but the idea was that we want this to be home-based. So the first six weeks are education, queuing, looking at movement patterns, um, And it's all supervised for the first six weeks. And then the second six weeks, we start transitioning the women into home-based exercise. And they go home with an app which has all of the videos, all of the cues, like verbal cues and written cues. Um, And they still have access to me if they're confused about something or if they're like, hey, Taylor, this movement, it just doesn't feel like it's working anymore. So they will send through and I can send back the progression or, it's not completely unsupervised in that second six weeks, but the idea was to make it as pragmatic as possible to hopefully transition them to, um, doing it by themselves. So, yeah. yeah.
0: And I know you haven't analyzed the data yet, but you, Mm. so you said you're going to look at kind of the, um, efficacy side of things, but are you also looking at the reported, um, symptoms with incontinence before the program and then afterwards
1: yes absolutely so that is our our primary measure is still um, symptoms of leaking so we are using the ICIQ um, pre to post and so we we measure it pre and then six weeks and then 12 weeks um, just because we think there might be a difference between supervised and unsupervised I'm pretty you know (laughs) I think we we know by now that Adherence is definitely better when when it's supervised So yeah, we are measuring symptoms. We're measuring uh, Incontinence related quality of life physical activity as well We want to see we we're actually tracking their physical activity weekly to just see what happens um, see whether they increase physical activity or the types of physical activity. They're doing changes or um, volume intensity so we're tracking physical activity.
0: That's, yeah. that's a lot of there's data afterwards.
1: Things, yeah, there's a few other things I would have loved to have in there, but practicality-wise and, and resource-wise as well as the other thing, um, just budget-wise, um, you know, as a PhD student, it was just not feasible, unfortunately. So hopefully that's a – maybe that's post-doc. I don't know.
0: Well, that's it. You, you kind of – yeah, you get used to – being creative and knowing that you could always do more, but you can't.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all, we all dream of the the $1 million grant that gets us a three year trial with research assistance and all the good stuff, but, one Maybe one day, day. you are
0: on you're on the right track for that so it will be, it will be great yeah. um, so can you talk about the systematic review that you did because that has got a lot of traction or at least on you know Twitter and um, yeah. just when I remember because it, it came out it came out last year and let me just make sure I'm thinking of the right one this was uh, 2018 overweight and obesity. As major modifiable risk factors for urinary incontinence in young to mid aged women, a systematic review and meta analysis.
1: That's the one. That is the one. (laughs) Yeah, that was, so yeah, like I said, that was my first um, kind of major project that I did as part of my PhD. Basically, what we found was that um, in young to mid aged women, overweight increased the risk of reporting incontinence by about 30 percent uh having a BMI over 30 increased the risk by about double so um I don't know I don't necessarily if it was anything new but what we already knew those were risk factors yeah um but what we did do was a few sub-analyses as well and it it looks like as well that the mid-aged women and the young women were experiencing the the same relative risk of incontinence. So the relationship between overweight and obesity was the same for young women and mid-aged women. Can you? So young
0: important. women is what? What are you saying? Are young? Because I yeah. am not young now. I think.
1: <laughs> so in that study, it was we kind of just dichotomized it into 18 to 35 okay. and then 36 to I think it was 46 or 47 or something silly because there was um oh, I'm sorry Laurie I'm mid-age. <laughs> Yay, <mid-age. laughs> <Okay>.
0: um,
1: <laughs> but the risk was the same yeah uh, in both groups, so that was kind of good for me to see that it was just as important in both groups,
0: yeah. I
1: think. Did um, you think it was
0: going to be higher in mid-age? I did. Yep.
1: Yeah, I did. I thought the relationship might differ because because I assumed, I guess, that mid-age women would also have compounding risk factors hmm. um, like multi or whatever it might be. Um, so that's when I kind of wanted to move more towards looking at the young women, which, yeah. so that's my secondary data analysis is in women in their twenties. Um,
0: but still so who are overweight and obese?
1: Well, actually just in the general population. Yeah. Um, so that's my, the, the next article, hopefully to be published soon. <laughs> you know, the process it's uh, drawn out, but.
0: So this was your first paper, right?
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, the first paper was systematic review. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then, so the second paper that hopefully will be published soon. um, So that's data from the Australian longitudinal study of women's health. So that's a general population. So we got to look at uh, BMI But we also got to look at levels of physical activity because they've tracked that over a few years in young women. And they also, which was amazing, have two young cohorts. So they're born about 17 years apart and they've measured both groups at 18 to 23 and then at 22 to 27. So I have this amazing comparison group where I can say is the problem getting worse? Is it getting better? Is the relationship the same? Um, so, like it was the same in young and mid-aged women, that relative relationship between you can BMI and to younger I can now people. compare it, exactly. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that was that was a great opportunity to work with that kind of data as well. It was a really different experience. There was huge, huge amounts of data. Um, so that was another skill to learn. Um,
0: was it? Oh, and both of these papers, are they, are they on symptomatic reports of incontinence or are they on objective like pad tests and stuff?
1: The systematic review and meta-analysis was a combination. So from memory, about 40% of the studies had objective measures yep. and about 60% oh, – yep. yeah, maybe don't quote me on this. It's been a while since I've looked at that paper um, – were subjective measures. We did a sub-analysis of that as well. And I'm pretty sure there wasn't a significant difference, Um, but that might have just been because we didn't have enough studies to kind of see that difference.
0: But as as a Um, pelvic floor issue, like compared to prolapse where objective findings Mm -hmm. and subjective findings don't always match, when you leak, you know you've leaked. So your symptomatic reports are pretty accurate that you've wet yourself. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and the... In the cohort study, so in, the, in that really big data set, that's my second paper, um, The it's a really simple question. It's just, in the last 12 months, did you leak urine? So it's very general, and this is one of the other um, issues that comes up in, or in any research really, is how was it measured? Um, but it's really lucky that in such big studies like that, the sample size kind of deals with that variants a little bit better than it would if in it a smaller, smaller yeah yeah so it's a very general question um yeah. and there's a lot a lot more questionnaires that are better validated and more reliable um but they're also not practical to give to sixteen thousand women to be able to get that all of that data back so yeah yeah i guess a little bit of weighing up <laughs>
0: Oh, for sure. But even like, even if you get specific, like again, hindsight, we used in our survey, the PFDI 20. And one of the urinary incontinence questions for stress incontinence is, do you usually leak urine when you are coughing, laughing or sneezing? And it was only by chance that I was reading some of the comments. And some women would say, um, the question said, usually, and it's not usually. So I ticked no. And I was like, so they leak only when they exercise, but they don't exercise in their mind frequently enough. So they said no. And I was like, oh, oh man, that question should have been worded differently. Or someone said, I don't leak with coughing, sneezing or laughing. I only leak with skipping. So I ticked no. And I went, oh, damn it. Yeah.
1: So I it's think- such a, it's such a good point. Hey, it's just those, it, and it can be one word in the yeah. questionnaire or one word in the, Survey and the question that can change how you think about it And it's really hard when you're the researcher because you know what you're asking To separate yourself from it and say how would I understand this as a participant? How would I read this? How could I possibly answer what are the yeah, it's it's hard to separate yourself, but it's a Yeah, it's definitely a limitation for sure
0: So you essentially have found, like you said, what we kind of already knew, that urinary incontinence has higher prevalence in women who are overweight and even more so when women are obese. And that's all based on BMI. So BMI is calculated by weight and height. And Mm -hmm. overweight is uh, a BMI of, what, 25 to 29.99? and then obesity (laughs) obesity is over 30. Um, How does, I don't know if it's come up in your literature, but it's always a question I have in my mind as well, is how does, you know, weight from muscle mass, how is that, Mm -hmm. that's not taken into consideration, right? So people, because I found a lot of people that we have looked at will be in the overweight category and sometimes obese, but they are, you know, lifting a a lot of mass and they're really active
1: so i'm like yeah because you it's another forever um it is contentious point i guess when working with with um bmi and weight just in general um but you
0: took physical activity into one of your studies you said
1: yeah so in the so in uh the second paper in this second paper, we look at physical activity levels, but in that big questionnaire, so the Australian Longitudinal Study of Women's Health is just a standard questionnaire that gets sent out um, every three years and actually in the, in the newest young cohort, who I included, they, they were actually every year for a few years, but now they're, they're going to every three years. Um, and they ask about physical activity using the earlier survey, which... It's unfortunately just a measure of volume, so we get intensity and we get uh, like number of minutes spent in activity, but you don't get types of activity, so you miss out on that kind of impact information. Mm-hmm. For example, you miss out on resistance training information. So there is there is some limitations again to that questionnaire. Um, yeah. We don't all of people's physical activity and, and actually sometimes questionnaires like that people can over-report physical activity, but again, in in those really massive cohort studies, they're pretty good at dealing with those kind of slight individual variations because you've got so many participants. In the end, the patterns are kind of robust enough to come out regardless, yeah. which is the amazing thing about working with such big data sets. On the other hand, you're limited by the questionnaires, the subjective nature of them, all of the limitations that come with self-report. But I think that because we have such a big sample size yeah. that it, it deals with it pretty well. And with regards to BMI, I think the, the age old argument is that it's not good when you're dealing with the individual. So it doesn't necessarily inform practice that well when you're just dealing one-on-one because yeah. it is case by case. We don't know their muscle mass. We don't know um, where it's distributed, which matters as well. Mm-hmm. And, but when you're working with the general population, BMI is a, is a really good indicator when you've got like those big epidemiological studies, it's a pretty good, good indicator of actual overweight and obesity and higher fat mass um tend to be related when it's in such a big cohort so yeah it is it is again a a limitation for sure um one that epidemiologists will forever (laughs) argue over but yeah
0: yeah (laughs) And the, the physiological study that you're doing with the 12 week program, um, that's not limited to women who are overweight and obese. That was just women who were leaking.
1: Yeah, no. So, so I decided not to include that as, as a exclusion criteria or inclusion criteria. Yeah. I think in hindsight, I wouldn't change that actually, because I think I've learned more by just. I I kind of kept my exclusion criteria quite limited, which Mm. is not, (laughs) I I feel like researchers would tell you that that's the silliest thing to do because you can't control for a million things. But I, because I was, I I still feel really new to this field. I wanted to see who responds to this, who wants help? What are the kinds of people that want, want this kind of program who are interested in it? Um, So, yeah, again, that's probably my psychological, my psychology background um, coming in. Um, But that's what I
0: don't think we have enough information on either, as in like adherence is one of our biggest issues with any kind of exercise, but also in the pelvic floor world. Um, And I know that people have looked into it here and there, but we still don't have an answer.
1: No. I know. And adherence is is one of those things that is so hard to measure as well. Like the difference between adherence and compliance, you know, maybe they're showing up, but are they, are they doing it exactly as prescribed or are they, are they using the strategies that you've tried to teach internally, but you can't, you can't see into their mind. You don't know exactly what they're focusing on. And yeah, it's, it's such a, such an abstract concept, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely really interested in, of course, symptom improvement, but, but also the feasibility of these kinds of programs and who is interested and, and what makes it easier to participate in. Um, yeah. So. It's mm. a really
0: funny question. Um, but you're gonna look at all of that within this physiological study. You're you're done yep. data collection.
1: Pretty much, yeah. I've got two or maybe three more participants to go. And once they're all finished up. So we did rolling recruitment. They've just kind of been okay, yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're not getting taking any more people?
1: No, currently not recruiting anymore, just yeah. for I need to finish some so I finish know, I was PhD. gonna say
0: so when oh, is this sorry. gonna be finished and when are people gonna get information out yeah. of this study?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the the plan <laughs> the plan is to be done in about six months. Um yeah, roughly end of May next year.
0: Like finished writing?
1: It, yeah. Oh Finish finish writing, finish PhD, hand it in. Oh.
0: See, part-time, part-time member, I double everything. So I'm like, yeah, a year, maybe, oh, my God, six months. That would kill me. Yeah,
1: six months. <laughs> but, yeah, so once I'm done with data collection, which should be at the end of this year, I might have a yeah. couple of um, early year 12-week follow-ups. But other than that, then I just have to, <laughs> just have to, just um, <laughs> analyze that data, get the study maybe written up in two kind of chapters because I've looked at symptoms and that kind of the efficacy, but also looked at the feasibility. So I've, I've done a a survey on aspects of the program that women found difficult or challenging or really useful and all of those kinds of questions as well. Um, So they might be in two separate projects, but yes, six months is the goal. (laughs) I'll have to get back to you on on how that goes that
0: will be oh, I'm so excited to hear to hear all the information that you get out of it like it's I love that you're not just looking at whether or not it changes somebody's symptom report of leaking there's so much more involved in it so yeah, when once you have all that data you know you'll be doing another episode and oh. <laughs> telling us all of telling us all the answers <laughs> to that as well
1: I'll fill you all in that's <laughs> But I'm sure
0: that's how it will go. <laughs> yep. Um, so if we go back to the overweight and obesity, um, what yes. I love that your conclusion from that systematic review, you'd said clinical advice to young women at risk of or presenting with obesity should not be limited to metabolic health only, but should emphasize the role of excess weight on pelvic floor weakening and subsequent risk of incontinence.
1: Yes. Yeah. Really good. Oh thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that um there's a lot of things that come alongside um a higher BMI that are not counseled about and also I, I don't know if we're counseling people in the right way about it either. Like lose weight, lose weight immediately, otherwise you'll get cardiovascular disease and die like <laughs> i just don't know if that's being delivered um alongside other potential health benefits and also how how does one even go about achieving that you know if it's if it's for the pelvic floor and you say well you need to drop this weight as soon as possible you need to start running or something yeah, i don't know Then
0: how do they do it
1: Yeah, exactly. I think there's quite a few considerations that, that come alongside that whole, well, just lose weight and you'll be healthier. I think there's a lot more to it. And the nuances of how you present that, those kind of solutions is we're not there yet. I don't think. (laughs) Yeah. Um.
0: And do you do the systematic review on this topic in order to highlight this to the medical health and academic world? Because I find, you know, does this get to the public and patients or does it really mean nothing to them? And it's more trying to get the medical people to go, this is a problem we need to do something about it.
1: That is such a good question. Like who is your audience? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I think that's that's one of the things I've been struggling with as well in my PhD is how um publications get translated um we we know that years for science to get into practice um and there's a lot of reasons for that uh that is something that I have been struggling with as well is is I, I really, one of the main reasons I loved being a fitness instructor was getting the immediate feedback of helping people or making them feel good or just coming together. Like I really like that immediate feedback. So I find it quite tricky to say, like I've got this publication, which was exciting, but, but I don't see any immediate impact of that. And I, you know, so yeah, it's actually just that is something that I struggle with, and I don't know the outside. I don't know who's reading it. I ideally, it's going to you know all of those pools of of the practitioners and the other researchers in this area, and the patients and the public. Like, ideally, a little bit of a little bit of everything, but who who knows? No,
0: know, like that's what you hope for, yeah. but then it's. Absolutely there's so much about tracking impact but i think it's hard too because you know um obviously in the i think in the academic world it's more going to be the medical and health professionals that read it and reach it yeah. first and then they attempt to disseminate that information but i'm a hoping like you said with that physiological study you'll have more information on how exactly maybe to do that especially when incontinence is a barrier with exercise like your big big thing is just that it's an issue women are overweight there's a high prevalence of overweight and obesity and incontinence is a barrier but these women need to exercise and we need to work out
1: how to get them to do it Absolutely. Like how can we do this in a feasible way that doesn't make people feel um, like they need to push until they're leaking or they need to, um, I don't know, avoid certain exercises. Like how can we best help, yeah, the, the removal or at least mitigation of that barrier. And, yeah, so I guess the first part of my PhD was like what do we target? Yeah. Who, you know, where is the issue and then the second part is like well how on earth do we go about doing that
0: okay so there is your cliffhanger you'll have to come back to hear more from taylor in the future um have a wonderful day and again i hope everybody stays safe during this time.